1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of First Chronicles, chapters 22 through 25.
0: Okay, now we get to chapter 24. I want you to remember 24 because it deals with 24 courses. It's easy to remember, it happens to coincidentally, to be chapter 24, 24 courses for the priests. These are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethamar. And they had Nadab and Abihu were, you know, got in a big trouble. You may recall, because they died before their father had no children. Therefore, Eleazar and Ethamar executed the priest's office. David distributed them both: Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech the sons of Ithamar, according to their offices in their service. And there were there were more chief men found of the sons of Eleazar then of the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eliezer were the sixteen chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ithamar, according to the house of their fathers. So you got sixteen and eight. Hmm? Thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another, for the governors of the sanctuary, the governors of the house of God, were of the sons of Eliezer and of the sons of Ithamar. Now it's going to go through and mention some of these. Shimei, the son of Nethaniel, the scribe, one of the Levites, wrote them before the king and the princes, and the Zadok the prince, and the Himal- Himalak, son of Abiathar, and before the chief of the fathers of the priests and Levites, one principal household being taken for Eleazar, one taken for Ithamar. Now the first lot came forth to Jeharib, the second to Judea, the third to Hirim, the fourth to Shorim, the fifth to Melchizedek, the sixth to Mijimim, the seventh to Hekaz. The one you want to remember is the eighth. Obviously, these, stick, these names won't stick with any of us, but this one you want to remember, that the eighth course, these are being divided in 24 courses, the eighth course is the course of Abijah. And I'll show you why that will be interesting to you after we get through the, the mechanics here. The ninth to Jeshua, the tenth to Shechaniah, the eleventh to Eliashib, the twelfth to Joachim, the thirteenth to Hupa, the fourteenth to Yeshavad, the 15th to Bilgah, the 16th to Emmer, the 17th to Heser, the 18th to Ephesus, the 19th to Pethiah, the 20th to Jezekiel, the 1 and 20th to Jachin, the 2 and 20th to Gamal, the 3 and 20th to Delilah, not Delilah, Deliah, and uh, the 4 and 20th to Messiah. So there's 24. So David, according to the instructions of God, divides the priesthood into 24 courses, or divisions, if you will, Okay? Each one has a leader, obviously. These are the orderings of them in their service to come into the house of the Lord, according to their manner, under Aaron, their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. Great. Why are we so interested in chapter 24? Because when you get to the book of Revelation, you're treated to a visit to the throne room of the universe. And one of the prominent features of that you discover in Revelation chapter four and following, it says, And around about the throne, that is the throne, were four and twenty thrones or seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed with in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, as we undertake the book of Revelation, we know that the book of Revelation has 404 verses that include over 800 allusions from the Old Testament alone. Every one of these elements are amplified or explained somewhere else in Scripture. The reason the book of Revelation seems so strange to our ears is because we haven't done our homework in the Old Testament. Well, where on earth do we find 4 and 20 elders? There's many commentators conjecture, gee, we've got 12 tribes and 12 apostles. 12 and 12 make 24. Well, that sounds fine, but give me an example where that applies to Scripture. No, the only place you find 24 elders, or 24 seniors sitting, or uh, impaneled, is in the priesthood. But don't confuse it. That's, we're talking about Levitical priesthood. That's just a model. These are not Levitical priests. What are they? They'll identify themselves. The word, by the way, for those seats are also thrones. We're going to discover as they talk, they aren't just sitting there as observers, they are, in some respects, ruling. They're assigned these seats as kings or judges. Okay. And notice on their heads they have crowns of gold. Okay. 24 elders. David divides the priesthood into 24 courses in 1 Chronicles 24. By the way, there were non-Levitical priesthoods in the Old Testament. This shocks many people. Jethro was a priest, of Midian. He wasn't a Levite. What kind of priest was he? We don't know. Jacob gave tithes in Genesis 28. I'd love to know to whom. We don't know much about that. In Genesis 14, we have a very interesting guy show up by the name of Melchizedek just a couple verses, and he would disappear into obscurity except for the fact that Psalm 110 makes an allusion to him that Jesus Christ will be an, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron or Levitical. Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. Hamsworth for three chapters, dwells on this fact, that the Melchizedek priesthood was a king and a priest. He's the only one that was a king and a priest. The Levitical the, the, the Israel was divided. The priests were Levites. The rulers were Judah. And not to cross. But the Messiah is both. Not after, Levit- not after Levi, but after Melchizedek. So who are the 24 elders? What do they represent in the book of Revelation? Well, the, from First Chronicles 24, we're going to pre- presume that they represent, in some sense, a completed group somehow. They're the leadership of some kind of segment here. What we know they cannot be is they cannot be tribulation believers. Some Well, they are believers from the tribulation. No, we'll see in Revelation 7, not so. Because in Revelation 7, it says, One of the elders answered, saying to me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, one of the 24 elders explained to John who those tribulation saints are. So they're not tribulation saints, is the point. Okay. See, one of the elders answered. Well, something else they can't be. They can't be angels. Well, they're a bunch of angels. No, no, they're not. Because in Revelation 7, verse 11, it says, All the angels should round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, the four living creatures that fell before the throne. So they're distinct from them. All the angels. So it can't be angels. Can they be the nation of Israel? No. Chapter whole chapter 7 deals with that. Chapter 7 and 12. What are the distinguishing characteristics of the 24 elders? They're sitting on thrones, Revelation 3.21. They have white raiment, which, so they're righteous. They have crowns of gold, and that's mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 as well as 4 and 5. They sing the song of the redeemed. We're going to look at that in a minute in chapter 5. And they're called elders, and they're also called kings and priests. Very key thing. There's only three groups of people that are kings and priests. Melchizedek was... Jesus Christ will is, and we will be. In Revelation chapter 5, came forth and took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken the book, the four beasts and the four twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed... Us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And have made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. I want you to notice something. Second person. First person, excuse me. First person, plural. Thou hast redeemed us. These are the redeemed. How have they been redeemed? By thy blood. Out of what group? Out of every kindred, tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. That's what these elders are singing. The 24 elders. Who are they? I think you can make a, when you study this, make a clear case they represent us, the redeemed. Now, if that's true, there's something very important to understand. The tribulation, the great tribulation, is when the seals get opened, and they and the and that starts the the seven. You got the seven seals, you got the seven trumpets, all that starts chapter six on. The tribulation doesn't start until the book is opened. The book isn't opened until the Lamb receives the book, and when he receives the book, the redeemed are casting their their crowns on the glassy sea. So the redeemed are in heaven before the tribulation starts. Very simple thing, very fundamental. There's a lot more to prove that, but the, the, the lampstands of fire that were in chapter 1 were on the earth in chapter 2 and 3 are in heaven in chapter 4, and so on. That's, I encourage you to study the book of Revelation on your own and come to your conclusions. But chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, John opens the book speaking of, unto him that loved us and washed us from his, our sins in his own blood, and hath made what? us kings and priests unto God and to his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So that's, John is identifying himself with those elders. It's interesting, in heaven, whenever there's something John doesn't understand, it's an elder that explains it to him. I think that's kind of fun. Okay. Let's move on with chapter uh, chapter 24. The rest of the sons of Levi were these, or the sons of Amram, Shebel, and it goes through more names that I'm mispronouncing all the way through here. So... I won't drag you through all those. There's just more of the the whole lineup here of the rest of the Levites. And uh, uh, on it goes. Don't confuse this kish with the kish of Benjamin, which is where Saul came from. That's a different thing. And they likewise cast lots over against their brethren, against the sons of Aaron, in the presence of David the king, and Zadok, and Ahimelech, and the chief fathers of the priests and the Levites, even the principal fathers, over against their younger brethren. So we're down to verse 31. And that ends that chapter. Let's talk about one other thing that you might find interesting: the birth of Christ. Well, what about December? What about Christmas, December twenty fifth? It turns out the first recorded mention of December twenty fifth is the calendar of Philocalus, which was three hundred and fifty four A.D. It assumed. The birth of Jesus to be on Friday, December 25th of 1 A.D. That was their presumption when they made the calendar. December 25th was officially proclaimed by the church fathers in 440 A.D. Understand, you're, you know, you've got four centuries have gone by before they're even acknowledging. Nowhere in the Bible that I can think of do they acknowledge birthdays. The only birthday that comes to mind, in my mind, is the birthday of Antiochus Epiphanes, because he chose his birthday to desecrate the Holy of Holies. That that was the 25th of Kislev on the Jewish calendar, and you know that whole story. But anyway, birthdays, we have a tendency in our thing to celebrate birthdays. You see, this date that they picked was the vestige of the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. It's a carryover from the pagan Rome. The culture was used to celebrating on that thing, so they adapted that that tradition to their own to their the, the not the politically correct Christianity which had been ushered in by them the year of Christ's birth is the first issue the year is broadly accepted as 4 BC because of an erroneous conclusion from Josephus's recording of an eclipse that was assumed to be on March 13th of 4 BC shortly before Herod died it turns out that was probably an error there's several problems with this in addition that more likely the eclipse occurred on December 29th 1 BC but that's really not very helpful. Considerable time elapsed between Jesus' birth and Herod's death since the family fled to Egypt to escape Herod's verdict. They didn't return until after Herod's death. So clearly there's an interval between Christ's birth and Herod's death of some kind. Okay. Where was he? Down in Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, he visited Tana Island. That's a whole another thing we can get into sometime. Herod died, we know, on January 14th of 1 B.C., So Jesus was born substantially before then is the point. Okay. Now, let's take a look at the church fathers. Tertullian, who was born about 160 AD, stated that Augustus began to rule 41 years before the birth of Jesus and died 15 years after that event. And that's in his writings. Augustus died on August 19th of 14 AD, placing Jesus' birth at about 2 BC, if he's right. Remember, there's no year zero as you play, those, play with these numbers. In other words, 1 BC, 1 B.C. comes, you know, the next year is 180, right? There's no year zero is the point. Tertullian also notes that Jesus was born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra in 30 B.C. That's also consistent with the 2 B.C. date. Irenaeus, born about a century after Jesus, also notes the Lord was born in the 41st year of the reign of Augustus. And so, since Augustus reigned, began his reign in the autumn of 43 B.C., this also is uh, consistent with a 2 B.C. estimate here. Assebius, who is known as the father of church history, ascribes it to the 42nd year of the reign of Augustus and the 28th from the subjection of Egypt on the death of Anthony and Cleopatra. And so, the 42nd year of Augustus ran from the autumn of 2 B.C. to the autumn of 1 B.C. Subjugation of Egypt in the Roman Empire occurred in the autumn of 30 B.C., so that all that 28th year then extended from the autumn of 3 B.C. to the autumn of 2 B.C. The only date that will meet all these constraints then would be in the autumn, apparently, of 2 B.C. The one thing we know, that Jesus was not born in December for two reasons. The, the flocks were at open field. They're not in open field until uh, you know, after October. And no Roman administrator in his right mind would have everybody register in their, in their hometowns at, in a season when most of Judea is not passable. Jesus even says, pray that your flight be not on Sabbath day, and so forth. So, most scholars recognize that it ain't December. But let's talk a little about John the Baptist. That's why I'm bringing this into this little, as a little footnote to this study. Elizabeth, John's mother, was a cousin of Mary and the wife of a priest named Zacharias, who was of the course of Abijah, we learn from Luke 1. Okay? So, we know he was a priest, and he was a and he was, uh Of the course of Abijah. Turns out that's a very useful piece of information. When the temple was destroyed by Titus on August 5th of 70 AD, the first course of priests had just taken office. The priests always served from Shabbat to Shabbat. 24 courses, one each a course per week. So we can backtrack from that, since we know the first course was on duty when the temple fell, we can backtrack from that, and when we do, it turns out that Zacharias ended his duties then, apparently, on July 13th of 3 BC. Okay? Now, if John's birth took place 280 days later, it would have been on April 19th to 20th, 2 BC, precisely on the Feast of Passover, interestingly enough. It gets more interesting. That means that John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. We know that from Luke chapter 3, he says so. The minimum age for the ministry was 30. Augustus died on August 19th, 14 AD. That was the accession year for Tiberius. If John was born on April 19th, 2 BC, his 30th birthday would have been April 19th. 20th, 29 AD, or the 15th year of Tiberius. This seems to confirm the 2 BC date, and since John was five months older, this also confirms the autumn date for Jesus. Now Elizabeth hid herself for five months before the angel Gabriel visited her cousin. Mary went with haste to visit Elizabeth, who was then in the first week of her sixth month, or the fourth week of December 3 BC. If Jesus were born 280 days later, it would place the date of his birth on September 29th, 2 B.C., which was the first of Tishri, the the day of the Feast of Trumpets. Kind of interesting. Is this correct? Don't know. (laughs) But of all the accounts that I've seen, it's the one that is the most uh, consistent with what we think we know. It's still an estimate. It's still a guess. There's still some bridges in here. But uh, for what it's worth, uh, for those of you that want to celebrate Jesus' birthday, I encourage you to mark your calendars on September 29th, rather than December 25th. Unless you want to be pagan and all that, you know. <laughs> if you want to get a Christmas tree, go ahead and read Jeremiah 10 and see what you want to do with it. Okay. Okay. Let's go to the final one here, chapter 25, the singers and the musicians. More of a David and the captains of the host separated the service of the sons of Asaph. Here's our musician. And of Heman and of uh, Jeduthun, uh, who, who should prophesy with their harps and their psalteries and their cymbals. and the number of workmen according to the service was of the sons of Asaph... Zechariah, and Joseph, and Nethathiah, and Arela, and the sons of Asaph, under the hands of Asaph, which prophesied according to the order of the king. They prophesied in music. Got the gift of prophecy, but you also got the gift of music here. And of Jethon, and and it goes through all his sons. um, They prophesied with a harp, and gave thanks to praise the Lord. And Heman, the sons of Heman, and he lists all of those, and I won't try to mangle their pronunciation. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to lift up the horn, and God gave to Heman fourteen sons and three daughters. All these were under the hands of their father for a song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals and psalteries and harps for the service of the house of God, according to the king's order to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman." So the number of them with their brethren that were instructed of the songs of the Lord, even all that were cunning, <laughs> was two hundred fourscore and eight. That was 288. Okay. They cast lots, ward against ward, as well as small and great, the teacher as the scholar. Now the first lot came forth for Asaph to Joseph, the second to Gedaliah, with his brethren, and sons were twelve, the third to Zechariah and his sons, and his brethren were twelve. Fourth to Israel and his sons, and brethren were twelve, the fifth to Nathanael, he and his sons, and his brethren were twelve, the sixth to Bukaya, he and his sons, the brethren were twelve, the seventh to Jezeraleh. Jezera- he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. The 8th to Josiah, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. And the ninth to Meditaniah, He and his sons and his brethren were twelve. And the 10th to Shimei, He and his sons and his brethren were twelve. The 11th to Ezarel, He and his sons and his brethren were twelve. The 12th to Hashabiah, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. The 13th to Sheboel, He and his sons, brethren were twelve. The 14th to Meditiah, and he and his sons and brethren were twelve. Fifteenth to Jeremoth, and he and his sons and brethren were twelve. Sixteenth to Hananiah, and his sons and brethren were twelve. Seventeenth to Yashbekashah, he and his sons and brethren were twelve. And eighteenth to Hananiah, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. And the ninth, we're getting there. The nineteenth to Malathai, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. The twentieth to Eliatha, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. And the one and twentieth to Hothir, he and his sons and brethren were twelve. And the two and twentieth to Getalta, he and his sons and brethren were twelve. The three and twentieth to Meziah, he and his sons and his brethren were twelve. And the four and twentieth to Romatezer, he and his his sons and his brethren were twelve. So there you have it. Okay. Okay, I rather than drag you verse by verse through each of those, I, I realize that's a tedious thing. It's always a it's always a difficult thing for me because I don't want to skip, because that's 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 redacting the word of God. I don't want to do that. And yet I also realize there's nothing probably more tedious than having to mispronounce a bunch of names that for which we don't really have any particularly prominent uh, amplification or insights or linkage to other things. So, but uh, so it is, and so we. Uh, encourage you for next time to read for the next four chapters, 26, 27, 28, 29. We're going, about four, we're going at about a four-chapter pace, and uh, that's that, that's going to uh, finish 1 uh, Chronicles. So what you might also do is prepare for the subsequent sessions by starting to get into 2 Chronicles, where the pace picks up. There's more action, more things happening. All of this, 1 Chronicles really was a preamble to the, the guts of the book and so things are going to start happening with Solomon and and uh the and the civil war and and all that and uh there're lots of misunderstandings and um uh, non-biblical traditions that emerge out of what's forthcoming so we're going to want to try to be precise we're going to try to be uh, to honor what the scripture actually says and uh so that's why we that's why we always advise our students to have a, a translation, not a paraphrase. You want to know what you want to get at? Do you want to defer to the text, not the current culture? We make the bridge, of course, if we can, but, the, but we want to understand what God really said, not what somebody thinks he said. And uh, So in any case, First Chronicles, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have chosen us to be part of your kingdom. It's staggering, Father, as we try to understand that. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the extremes that you have gone to that we might live. But, oh, Father, we tremble as we try to learn some of the lessons here that you're teaching us through the life of David. Oh, Father, forgive us if for if any way that we glory in ourselves or in our accomplishments, rather than to recognize that every good thing we have, we have from your hand, that you're the great provider. Everything that we have that has any worth, you've provided to us. Everything we have. So, Father, we ask for your forgiveness for our sins of ingratitude and our sins of presumption. Oh, Father, we... We tremble as we realize that just as David numbered the people, how innocent that would seem to us at first, as we fail to appreciate how it looks from your chair. Oh, Father, we just pray that you would keep us humble, that you would forgive us for our sins of presumption and ingratitude, and cleanse us, Father. You've promised that if we confess them, that you would be faithful and just to Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we seek that, Father. We seek that we so that we might have continue to have access to your throne. We ask that, Father, so that you might, through your word and through your spirit, more clearly illuminate that path before us that we might really know what it is you'd have of each of us in the days that remain. Help us, Father, to be ever more effective stewards of the resources you've placed at our disposal, of the opportunities you've put on our path. Help us, Father, to be pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves this evening into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, the Son of David himself.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of First Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.